Welcome at the Coalface. I am Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world, beyond the headlines, and look for lessons learned that can inspire us. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways you can help. Please click the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and also consider visiting at thecoalface.buzzsprout.com and click on the support button. And a shout out to our six current supporters. Thank you for helping make this podcast possible. In this episode, I speak with Morgus Gibramedin. I'd long wanted to have a longer conversation with Morgus after meeting him at an event where he was a panelist and we had a Q&A on his thoughts about the trajectory of East Africa where he grew up between Ethiopia and Kenya, yet originally from Eritrea. Morgus shares his story of multiple identities common to many people in the region, connected by similar challenges, yet also divided by complex affiliations and loyalties. We talk about what factors matter most in the trajectory of development of these countries, the trade-off that can sometimes occur between peace and democratic participation, and the devastating impact war can have on any progress these countries have made. Hi, Morgus. I'm absolutely delighted to be hosting you today on our At The Coalface GMAP podcast. I've been looking forward to our conversation for some time. I remember the last time we met and spoke with each other. It was at, a, at an alumni event. I believe it was in London. And I'd been really excited to have an interaction with you about Ethiopia. I think it was at the time. And so really glad that uh, we're connecting and that you're making the time for this today. Thanks, Philip. It's a real pleasure to be with you. And I, I remember... Um, all the GMAP events and the London one in particular, because I defended my thesis there and my wife joined me and it was a wonderful weekend of connections. And uh, I look back fondly on those times. So thanks for having me on. Thanks for agreeing. And uh, we're, we're actually, this is the first episode I'm recording in 2024. So uh, happy new year to, to you. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's something really exciting also for me about our conversation right now is uh for, for a lot of our guests, uh, there's quite a lot of information online, and usually uh, I've, I've been able to do quite a bit of research. And in your case, there's very little. So it's almost a blank slate. I don't have a lot of uh, prepared mm. questions or anything. Uh, I have a particular uh, interest also because I love uh, Ethiopia. Um, where uh, I uh, spent uh, quite a few weeks uh, discovering both the uh, kind of a church area with the, all, all the ancient churches, but also in the less developed uh, south with uh, all the various uh, tribes that can uh, oh, can be visited. And I remember we had an exchange on your country as well. So I'm really excited to have uh, to have that discussion and, and find out a bit your your perspective on on uh, on your own country. And so maybe that's a place that we could we could start. Is uh, if if I, I would love if you could uh, take us a bit back in time and share a bit um, what your early life looked like. Where did you grow up? Um, and um, and also from from a family standpoint. What was your family life like and uh, what, what did you talk about at the uh, dinner table? Thanks, Philip. I was born in Ethiopia. My family is actually, I am Eritrean, of Eritrean origin. And very shortly after I was born, um, when I was four years old, my family emigrated to Kenya. And that was in part because of the tumultuous times in Ethiopia at the time. This would have been the late 70s, so the Red Terror during the Mengistu regime. 
and this was a particularly difficult period in Ethiopia's history. Uh, and so we, my, my father uh, moved us to Kenya, where he settled, we settled, and I, I grew up and went to school. So I kind of had a regional identity, if I could put it that way. On the one hand, I was born in Ethiopia. My first language was Amharic. Uh, I grew up in Kenya. Uh, I consider it very much to be home. But I've always known that my family and my identity is an Eritrean one. And I would I would say here that there is a, a very strong connection between Ethiopia and Eritrea. Of course, Eritrea was at one, uh, one time part of Ethiopia before formally getting independence in, in 1992 uh, after a prolonged uh, war of independence. Um, and of course, there is a history of the two countries that is very uh, difficult in many respects, but also very close. And I think um, even today we see a lot of difficulty and, and promise at the same time between Ethiopia and Eritrea. So, um, so I, I find myself in a particularly, like many Eritreans and Ethiopians, uh, sort of betwixt and between. On the one hand, I feel very strongly about Eritrean independence and nationality, but I like to think of myself as somebody who thinks it's absolutely critical and, and natural that there be a very strong relationship between Ethiopia and Eritrea. So maybe just to, to round that, my response off there, I grew up in Kenya, always with an eye on Ethiopia, listening to my parents and our community talk about the struggles in Ethiopia during the Derg regime, as it was known under Mengistu throughout the 80s. Um, you know, there was uh, a massive exodus of Ethiopians and Eritreans who left and emigrated to the U.S., to Europe, because of the war and instability uh, in both countries as a result of the political situation there. So, you know, and when I went back, I went after graduating from school in, in Kenya, I went to an international school, uh, an American school here. After graduating, I went to university in the United States, um, which was right about the time that Eritrea became independent. And I decided that I wanted to go back to Eritrea to complete a national service program uh, upon graduation. Yeah, so, you know, in 1996, after I graduated, I, I went, went, came back to Nairobi just to wait for the first, the next round of national service to begin. And in 1997, I returned to Eritrea and, and uh, went and did my, my uh, national service, which at the time consisted of six months of military training followed by one year of uh, national service, you know, where you would provide service to an appropriate. Um, in my case, it was, I was going to do my national service at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs because I had an interest in foreign affairs and diplomacy. Unfortunately, while I was there, the uh, second conflict between Eritrea and Ethiopia broke out. This was the 1998 border war. I eventually came back to the capital, Asmara, where I began to work with the government around media and communications. And that, that got me to about 2002 before I returned to the United States with my wife who I met there and our firstborn child. And what, what I find striking about your story is that it's actually quite representative of the complexity of uh, people who, who are born there and grow up there. And even for me as a kind of a hobby, uh, hobby traveler, uh, just spending a few weeks in Ethiopia, this, this, this becomes quite, quite uh, obvious, just for, for, first of all, the sheer size of the country, and then in, in terms of population with more, more than 100 million, uh, and, and just then moving from one place to the other, just the, the sheer uh, ethnic language uh, diversity is just uh, st staggering. 
um, and and also the amount of um, uh, I would say conflict and identification with certain groups that that creates lots of complications. Um, so I I I, um, I recall and and even it spills over internationally. So for example, in in Switzerland where where I grew up, we have quite a lot of refugees both from Ethiopia and um, Eritrea. And there's actually quite a lot of conflict in between them, so it, it makes it difficult that's for correct, yeah. so even even battles in the streets between different groups it makes it yes, really difficult right. for right. the uh, the authorities and even the general population to make sense of why that is happening. I even recall taxi drives in the U.S. with Ethiopians, uh, and and I had to be careful what I said uh, because some yes. of the, for example, ardent uh, supporters of the the, the Tigrays, and then they, they, they would vomit and, and criticize uh, Abi at the time, the um, the current president. Yes, um, and so even in my visits in the south of the country, where it's very undeveloped, you have different tribes that almost like at a hunter-gatherer type of level of development, even within, among them, uh, until recently, there was really, really very uh, acute level of, 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 uh, of fighting. And then, of course, that spills over into the Sudanese uh, border, which, which is quite porous as well. So it's an immensely complex place, yet it's um, v- visiting it and seeing, for example, that the richness of, of, of arts and, agriculture and, um, and architecture, uh, some of the very first Christian churches with depictions of Jesus Christ that were made in the first century after Christ, and therefore uh, picturing a Jesus that's probably co- quite like what he really looked like. So all, all of these different contradictions with a population that's deeply religious, broadly speaking, um, makes it extremely difficult to to uh, to understand. And I, just for a side story, uh, when I was there, I, I befriended a 16-year-old kid in Lalibela, which is this uh, kind of heartland of, of uh, uh, all these uh, churches that I just talked about. And we stayed in touch uh, over the years. And he 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 asked for 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 help when the uh, recent war happened and described in in detail. Um, what the impact it had on on him having to flee the advance of the Tigrayans in 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 Lalibela and and the the injuries that he suffered as a as a result. Um, so I, I just long 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 um, answer from my side. But what I wanted to ask you is, it seems that this complexity and and, and um, kind of conflictual. Self definition of identity must 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 have shaped you in some way. And I, I was I was curious about how how that influenced how you how you define yourself. Um, and and as a as an East African or as an Eritrean mm-hmm. or or as a, as a member of a particular tribe, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a it's a good question. We could probably spend uh, a few days <laughs> talking about it and trying to. Uh, trying to unpeel that. Uh, there are a lot of layers there. I guess I, I would answer that in a couple of ways. First and foremost, as I, I said earlier, I identify as an Eritrean. Um, but I, 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 and I don't mean to say that I need to qualify it, but I do want to acknowledge that there's often a, a, a case where somebody is an, identifies as an Eritrean uh, to the exclusion of sometimes, uh, you know, a rational understanding of what needs to happen in a region where you have to find ways for economic integration 
and sustainable relationships. And we, I regret to say that we don't have that in the region broadly. This is not a, a comment about Eritrean character or Ethiopian, or, but broadly in the region, in the Horn of Africa, we, we seem to struggle with being able to say, I'm Ethiopian, you're Eritrean, let's focus on wealth creation, right? Or I'm Somali, you are Ethiopian, let's focus on uh, sovereignty and, and sovereign relations that build on each other and you know, mutual defense, for example, as opposed to, you know, so there, there, it, it is a very complex region. You touched on this earlier. I also just, I mean, I think the, I think actually you, the comment you made earlier about the taxi ride is really emblematic of this, this exact thing that we're talking about. I have the exact same, I could tell you the number of stories and I have an actual approach for when I get into a taxi in Dulles. And within the first two minutes, I know if I'm in a taxi with an Eritrean or an Ethiopian. If it's an Eritrean, I know if they're an Eritrean who is a staunch supporter of the government or if they're an Eritrean who is on the outs. And I calibrate my discussion around that, mostly because I'm fairly tired at that point, having been on a long haul flight and I don't have the energy for protracted political discussion. Uh, But also because, you know, I, I want to try. I think it's important to have. Uh, more and more people strike a uh, a medium, a sort of conservative line in understanding uh, the importance of of relationships that are listening, that listen to each other, and that are based on in, engagement and not uh, opposition. You know, this, these are some of the things that we studied at at GMAP. You know, in some of our, some of our courses. So, so that's extremely important. I think the conflict that sort of seems to and the the tensions that build up nationally definitely are being exported to the diaspora communities. There's a part of me that wants to say that I feel in some senses as though that's increasing and accelerating. You made reference a little while ago, Philippe, to recent sort of literally running battles in some European and Canadian and, and even U.S. cities between uh, Ethiopian communities and Eritrean communities. We can dissect that further to say they were potentially Tigrayans and, and Eritreans or other groups. I think the most important thing to note there is that there seems to be an acceleration of some of this interethnic tension and that it's also being exported to communities abroad. The diaspora continues to grow. And I think that's another important point. You know, we kind of thought uh, at the end of the Cold War, when the, the communist regime uh, collapsed in Ethiopia and you had Eritrean independence and you had a new Ethiopian state, that the period of sort of mass exodus was coming to a close, you know. And I think one of the most difficult things uh, to, to have to acknowledge, which we don't all often do, is that the number of immigrants uh, fleeing the region from Eritrea and Ethiopia and taking their life into their hands to, you know, cross the Mediterranean, uh, for example, is massive. It's, it's, it would indicate to you that things are getting worse rather than better in many respects. And that this is very difficult. And these this new generation of younger people from the region, I'll say, who are are making these difficult decisions are definitely taking their their viewpoints and their positions and their lived experience in these countries with them. In in what in one sense, I suppose they feel very strongly and, and still have a sense of uh, you know patriotic pride or nationalism or whatever you want to call it, that they still feel politically engaged. But, but it, is very, it is very, very complex. And I think the, the flight of young people and what they are willing to endure 
to try and go to other countries is very, very telling and problematic. Maybe last question before going more into your your own journey, which is what, what I really wanted to to uh, deepen here, is quite a number of these countries in the region, I'm thinking partic particularly uh, Rwanda, Burundi, um, Uganda, and, and cl clearly uh, Eritrea, follow a model of, of political governance that's quite, um, I would say, authoritarian or quite closed. Um, I would love to get, get your thoughts on that. Eritrea is one that is one of the, probably the least known internationally. We never spoke about it in, in, uh, in the GMAP um, program, but it's quite a peculiar style of governance as well. And I'm just curious about yeah. whether that is driving exodus and just your, your own perspective. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. You know, I, I think it's worth just looking back to sort of, again, this 1992 period There was a there was a point in the in the 90s when uh, the leaders of these three states were hailed or these states were hailed as a new African Renaissance. I don't know if you remember that, but I think it was President Clinton at the time who referred to, you know, the Ethiopia, Eritrea, Rwanda as this African Renaissance of leaders who were maybe market oriented, the post communist or big uh, leader and seemed to be more. Uh, inclined to have democratic rule of a kind, but but we're also just pragmatic and focused on on um, alleviating poverty. I think a lot has changed. You know, I think in the case of Eritrea, the border war in 1998 and the uh, the subsequent decisions, uh, and and I would just I would say lack of enforcement of some of the border uh, decisions around uh, the border demarcation. I think kind of have put Eritrea on a somewhat different path and uh, have uh, reawakened a sense of abandonment that um, Eritrea nat naturally feels. Uh, for 30 years, it's a country that fought without any assistance against a fairly tyrannical regime, uh, doesn't feel like it owes anybody an explanation, and was quite could quite quickly become more inverted. Uh, Rwanda is a little bit different. It's it's harder to say. I, I get a general comment that I would make on this is that they are all, I think they're all fairly rule is a, you know power is quite centralized, and yet they are quite different. I, I mean, I think in the case of of you know Rwanda as an example, and I'm I'm sure there's a lot of debate on this, but there is stability. There is um, you know a level of freedom of movement and economic activity that I'm not sure you're seeing at the moment um, in Eritrea for, for various reasons, including, you know, the, the country feels like it's in a continued state of war and besieged. Ethiopia is all, obviously also going through a lot of conflict. But I think the bottom line is that, yes, these are countries that have not, that look like they might be moving towards uh, pluralism and have not necessarily done so. As to whether or not, I mean, if I, if I can speak candidly, as to whether or not that's what you want Uh, or what you or what's more important is to get to a point of wealth creation and economic development uh, and focus on stability. I, I mean, this is a I don't want to get into a philosophical debate about it, but I could uh, I suppose it's possible to say, you know, for somebody to make the argument that in some of these countries, the models for, hey, open up and have multi-party democracy and see where it takes you and build build wealth and build your institutions at the same time doesn't always hold. I mean, I, I do think that there's some truth to the fact that there are, that we have not had the sense, the sort of unification that a lot of European countries went through. Yeah. The ability for, you know, you know unification uh, that was more organic that allowed these countries to, to form in a way that, you know, these are states that are a result of 
border allocations, you know, by colonial powers. And so, so that does play into it. So I think about it quite often. I mean, I, and again, I think it's, it's a debate you could probably have. I mean, I think people in all these countries would like to have the freedoms, you know, uh, political freedoms that everyone else, um, people in other countries enjoy. But if we were to talk about hierarchy of needs, you know, I think uh, peace and food security and, you know, some of those things are, are of course, also very, very important. So it's a, it's not an easy question. To I'd, I'd love to revisit that when we talk a bit about your work in, in developments, because I'm, I'm sure some for some of the donors that uh, that you work with, this topic of having a, a democracy agenda probably plays a role in their uh, in what, what they ask. So putting the spotlight back on, on you. So you talked about uh, growing up in, in, in Kenya and then having an opportunity to, to, to study in the, in the US. And then what were some of the maybe events or people that shaped a little bit the, the direction that you that started emerging on, on what you wanted to do in, in life? I think as a young, uh, as a student in the U.S., I was really and remain, the Eritrean story is one that stays very, very close to me. And so what really inspired me in those days and what continues to is the Eritrean identity, the state, the ability of a group of people who crossed ethnic and religious lines, because that's what the Eritrean People's Liberation Front at the, you know, was, was a co a cohesive group, really, of Christians and Muslims, Highlanders and Lowlanders who forged together to effectively create an, an Eritrean identity. This is my my take on it right now. And against all, and, you know, the title of a book, a very well-known book at the time was called Against All Odds, about the Eritrean story. And this was deeply, as a, as a young person, uh, idealistic, very, very inspiring to me, that they were able to overcome, you know, the largest standing Af uh, military in Africa, the Ethiopian army, defeated by a rebel movement that relied entirely on community support, mobilization, implementing development in its most core sense, right? So building schools and hospitals underground in the most difficult environments, uh, finding ways to train people, but also being able to attract people who had already migrated and were on other trajectories, right? And so I think one of the one of the most inspiring things for me, what one of my bosses who I worked with in Eritrea, and his story is not dissimilar from many others, was a student at MIT who literally left and came back because he wanted to be part of, had an opportunity to join the, uh, the, the, the war for independence. And sort of, you know, if you think about it in the modern context of people who are moving West, these are people who had that that opportunity and came back and sort of left that because they wanted to nation build. So I think that idea is one that's been really formative, that concept of coming back, of, of leaving that, what you think is important to you to come back to, to sort of fight and shape your country. That's kind of been, uh, I think, the most some of the most formative and important things for me. So, so can you share a bit more? So, so when you were when you were studying in the U.S. and what was your first kind of opportunity to then kind of bring that vision to life and and uh, and and start deciding what were your area of interest, where you wanted to make it uh, make a difference? Well, I mean, my my undergraduate study focused heavily on you know my ma my major was political science and and history. You know, so those are sort of the core. Uh, study areas, I suppose, if you're interested in diplomacy and understanding how the world operates and also understanding the 
post-colonial dynamic, which I thought was very interesting, but really also doing it in a way that, so in my, when I was in the U.S., I spent uh, one long summer back in Asmara, uh, uh, spending time with my uncle who ran a business and just recommitting myself to this idea that I wanted to, my plan was to return to Eritrea and I wanted to to focus on doing what I could, whatever I could to, to be to be part of, of uh, Eritrea's development. And so, you know, when I came, I, I think I went back after my sophomore year and spent the summer there working with my uncle and committed then to coming back after graduation to do my national service and actually put that plan into action. I had an opportunity. It's a very small country. So, you know, it, it, the, the ability to connect with uh, somebody who's working in, in a ministry and says, yeah, come over. I'll introduce you to the minister. Everyone is on a first name basis. And this was a period where, you know, every single minister, uh, the president himself at the time, everyone was driving a Toyota Corolla. There was no trappings. It, you know, it was it was really a unique time. And so it was not difficult to be very caught up in and in, in mobilized and inspired by by what you saw. So, you know, in that period, my last two years of university in the U.S., my eyes were already and my my focus is really already on sort of going back there. Um, so. You know, my coursework, while important, I thought was uh, something that I would do just to be able to to contribute in areas where I, where I thought I could. Um, as always, you know, what you I think what you study in undergraduate is uh, always going to be um, subject to what life throws at you. I was fortunate enough. I had a, a quick break, I think, in between graduating and, and going back where I worked for an NGO in Kenya and started doing some media advocacy type work. Uh, and so I, I, I got a real interest in doing uh, in media and communication. And so by the time I got to Eritrea, I'd had a little bit of work experience in that. And that's some of the stuff that I ended up doing while I was there. What did you see as some of the needs that needed to be addressed from a development standpoint? Like what, what was, um, you talked about working in communication, you talked about m- mingling with people in the um, in the diplomacy in the political sphere in, in uh, Eritrea was there a cause that was starting to emerge or w- w- like a, 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 a uh, an area of development that uh, needed to have your attention you talked about one of your relatives who was um, a business person uh, was that also a path that that you felt uh, drawn to and that, and just in, in in general I find it interesting in in the conversation we've been having so far a lot of the way you talk about Eritrea it, it, it sounds like it's not really a country but more like a, even a movement or a cause <laughs> an idea right almost like yeah uh, no I think that I think that's right in in my mind that's that's how I, I I still think of it and I think that there's you know, certainly a lot of elements of that still. Uh, some of the most resilient people you'll ever meet, I think. Some of the most committed, some of the most um, skilled. No, I think, and, and some of this has evolved over time, but uh, the core sort of needs that uh, of development um, and nation building are, you know, I, I, I think probably last on the list of priorities is, is uh, you know, diplomacy and comms. Although I do think it has its place. You know, I think what really inspired me was that everyone was playing a role. This ground up kind of um, wealth creation, focusing on empowering communities and decentralizing, you know, the Ministry of Local Governance and uh, Internal Sort of Affairs that really focused on 
giving communities a voice and giving them an opportunity to advocate. What do you want? What resources do you need to be able to develop what you want? Um, and, you know, I think that it's the key things, understanding that, you know, food security, access to water, uh, these are all important. So my, my uncle, uh, the relative I mentioned, uh, I say business because I think in a unique way, he had an entre and continues to have an entre entrepreneurial sort of approach to things. But he's, he's a farmer. He is a complete farmer from head to toe. And what, what he's really focused on is uh, conservation, a sort of interesting approach to conservation agriculture and integrated farming. He had uh, uh, livestock, but he also was a honey farmer uh, and really spent a lot of time finding ways to cultivate wild honey in, in the hills of Eritrea. He had uh, lots of different types of livestock and was very curious about um, how to grow them. So he, he was a farmer, academic businessman, and always trying things, always, always trying things. And, you know, for him, everything was, let's see if this works. Let's, you know, let's experiment with it in his own way. He would sort of have these little control environments, you know, what happens if I put this hive over here and this hive over here and monitor and had a notebook where he would draw pictures and note all these things. So, you know, I, for me, it was uh, a reflection of the fact that all uh, people who bring their unique skill set and interests can contribute in a really meaningful way to the key things that are required in a developing country. In this case, food security, alternative farming, you know, which is really, really important. It's not, Eritrea is, a, was, is not a country that has loads of arable, you know, a land. There's certainly a, a lot of farming opportunity but it's fairly dry, it's fairly rocky, the, you know, it can be a pretty difficult terrain for, for farming in many, or traditional farming in many events. And so being innovative was a, uh, a natural and necessary thing for a lot of air trains. And I think that also is not just in the farming space, but in business approaches and other ways as well. And is that also some of the, the work that you've been doing for the organizations you've been working at is is that also a little bit the 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 approach that they they use I, I find it interesting that you identify food security access to water as key challenges but an answer to that is not more infrastructure uh, or, or or donation it's really about um helping improve creativity information sharing um promoting innovation so it's this really interesting approach that you're you're highlighting there that, that I, th I think your organizations are promoting as well if, if i'm not mistaken I, I that's absolutely correct i think that's correct and i think what's most exciting about that is that the key challenges haven't changed but an understanding of how best to approach them uh as captured in in a concept like localization or local-led development you know, is what's most exciting to me. And in many ways, it kind of reflects what a lot of these countries have been trying to do. Not perfectly, certainly, always, but have been trying to say, we need to own our own development agenda. We have to have a way to ensure that our ideas, because we know best, and this is now almost word for word, some of the language that comes out of, you know, uh, the US, USAID, for example, is local development initiatives, which is local solutions and local actors. An acknowledgement and an understanding that uh, development is done best when uh, local actors and local solutions are put at the forefront. There is a separate discussion when you talk about infrastructure about um, the investments and the unfortunate connection. I think sometimes infrastructure is absolutely necessary. You're not going to have 
a robust market system in these countries or even a nascent one if you're not making the necessary investments in infrastructure. At the same time, you know, we are in the middle of a crisis for many countries in Africa where uh, profligate spending and mm -hmm. borrowing, yeah. in many cases for large infrastructure projects, has now put us in a position where, you know, countries in Ethiopia was defaulted officially, I think, last week. Uh, Zambia last year. Several countries are on the precipice of a of a default, and there's absolutely a major debt crisis. Um, on the continent and in, in the region where I live and work as well. So on the one hand, the infrastructure is necessary. On the other hand, the way that it's been done is probably questionable. That's, that's really fascinating. So yeah, indeed, that's, that's a topic that also doesn't make headlines very much is this debt crisis you just mentioned uh, with uh, yeah, it should yeah. really large amount of spending and, and then of course increasing interest rates, almost a perfect storm now. Um, and which is in many countries, as you highlighted, eroding these countries' ability to deliver public services. It's just no money to pay teachers or fund education or, 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 or healthcare. So it, it, I, I find it fascinating. So, so it's obviously now making an, an impact on resources available for, for infrastructure. Um, I find it interesting, your emphasis on, on local-based uh, development and how that can really yield amazing results. You, you just watching you talk about that this clearly is a subject you're really passionate about and so, so maybe i can ask are there a few of these initiatives or projects that you've been part of that you think are a model that you're particularly proud of um in, in terms of what they've delivered or generally what you learned uh through them yeah there are, there are a number and i i think one of the challenges is that their stories are not probably being told as they should um you know uh, I'm privileged to serve on the board of an organization called the uh, BOMA, the BOMA Project, which uh, is uh, works in the uh, arid lands of, of uh, Africa and uh, is, for, is a poverty graduation program that's focused on really moving our, the leadership uh, nexus towards um, the region. So proximate leadership, uh, proximate operations are all key to that. And there's many others like it in other groups like Adesso, which are doing similar things and are, are leaders in that. Uh, I think there are, um, again, it, 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 there are so many community-based organizations who don't even have a platform. We don't even know that they exist because we are at the point where I think we are acknowledging we have to make the, the, the time and effort to discover to find where these voices are and to give them the resources that they need in a sustainable way, not in a drip drip fashion, but in a way that allows them to sustain and, and, and grow meaningfully, right? So that they are leading these solutions. Now, many of them, of course, also need capacity development and support. Um, not every experience is going to be a great one, but broadly speaking, that that is the sort of direction. So, so I think we need to find out more about these organizations. We need, we need to find a way to attract these local voices and to, to bring them forward. And, you know, that's what's really important. And is, is there an example of a re recent or an initiative that you've been part of that you, where, where you've, you've seen real impact by using this kind of local development approach just to kind of bring to life a bit um, what, are, what are some of these activities that can really make a difference in a, in a local community? One example I can share is actually an example in Ethiopia. Um, the organization I work for implements a large-scale agriculture program funded by, by USAID. And uh, the, the major partner there is a, a local uh, private sector firm, actually, a management consulting firm, 
that is really helping to shape our thinking on how to engage locally, including, for example, how to lead our operations in countries so that we are we are relying on a local partner as opposed to uh, trying trying to lead them. I think the point there is that uh, when these are not transactional relationships with with local partners, that um, what we see is new ideas coming forth, and it's not always difficult. I work for a, a U.S.-based organization, and so uh, we are learning how to to listen. We are learning how to uh, you know uh, rethink our approaches, uh, our partnerships. Um, and but I'm glad to be working for an organization that is very open to that. And um, you know, so in, in the example of Ethiopia, I mean. You know, this is a, a, a really strong uh, partner that has invested in a youth development program uh, and works sort of a workforce development program with young professionals, uh, finding ways to get cohorts of young professionals, attach them to the areas and, and, and sectors where they want to work, give them the soft skills, help them with some initial resources to make sure that they are able to to get into that work stream and flow. So a real sort of professionalization. And this is the thing for me, right? Because the youth bulge in Africa, which we often, I don't know if if you've heard it the same way, but often I find that we we hear about, we talk about youth as though, oh, this is the challenge of youth and what are we going to do when they are associated with conflict or instability? You you live, Philippe, in Switzerland, or you are from Switzerland, I think. And you probably know that uh, many European countries would kill for the sort of uh, population spread that countries in Africa have, where you have a productive workforce that greatly outweighs your your aging workforce. And so how do we change this conversation so that we are talking about the opportunities for youth, youth as a solution, not youth as an issue that has to be addressed, but youth as a solution for all these things. And I think that finding partners that are able to do that and help us see them as a solution is what's most exciting. And I think in Ethiopia, we're getting a sense of that. Yeah, so I'd, I'd love to stay on this topic of youth because it's one that's uh, preoccupied me a, a, a lot. I mean, if I look at your background, uh, the, the opportunities that you had to study in the US and to then give back, I find that really an amazing story. I, I can't help but uh, remember my, my friend uh, Kidane that uh, I, I got to know in, in Lalibela uh, and who, mm-hmm. who had really this very happy demeanor and were super helpful with tourists made a bit of money in the tourism industry and then when uh, when the conflict happened he was displaced and uh, ended up actually kidnapped um and then uh, had to uh, convince his grandmother to sell her land uh, and then everybody ended up uh on the street uh and to to try to see like what what are opportunities for for people who have nothing i, I still remember when he was um, shining shoes very early in the morning in the market to be able to pay for 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 school or, or school books um, and so it's, it's really hard to to imagine a pathway for um, I, w- I would say quite a large amount of, of, of youth who, who just have to struggle to to uh, to stay afloat so how do you reflect on that because you, you must have also been exposed to immense um, inequality and disparities in in just just the, the kind of futures that some of the young people can 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 just imagine actually uh based on where where they where they start in life yeah that's a a uh, that's a very 
good and, and personal question, and I appreciate you asking it. Uh, when I think about it, I have to always, I am clearly very, have been very, very privileged in my upbringing and the opportunities and the resources that I've had to be able to access education. And, and, uh, and that makes all the difference, you know. Um, I tend, the way I tend to think about this, Philip, is Kidane, for example, um, could as easily have been sitting here talking to you about their studies and their work and their passion for development. Uh, and I could have been the one who was subject to uh, terrific, you know, terrible um, efforts to escape and being captured. And, uh, and there's a whole, there, in my mind, this is part of the, the real uh, challenge and, and, and tragedy of the sort of youth flight is that um, your most productive people are willing to risk everything to leave. And I, I suppose, Philip, that I want to believe, and I suppose it's easy for me to say so because, you know, I am not in, in those shoes, but I want to believe that this is you when, when people have an opportunity that they still value safety and, and family above all else. But the natural desire to, to grow, to develop, to be able to accumulate wealth and to to take care of oneself and to have independence and freedoms are very, very important. That's not going to happen overnight. So if we take a step back and have a broad view of this, I, it's, it's really difficult, I think, to sort of say, what do we do for youth today without also talking about what are we doing with early childhood education? What are we doing with nutrition for children ages one through five? Because these are key building blocks in terms of the opportunities that they get, their ability to get uh, early quality education early, something that my organization spends a lot of time working on, you know, at national scale, working with governments to implement really uh, quality education programs at national scale for children at the age where they are really forming the, the building blocks that they will need and that research has shown are critical in their, their future pathways. Nutrition, another area where, um, where we work a lot, absolutely critical. So in, in one sense, you have to be able to look at the things you can do for young people where they are in life, you know, uh, work opportunities, skills development. But you also have to sort of take a bit of a macro view and say, what are we doing along the continuum? And are we making the necessary investments in, in education and nutrition? So for me, I think it's dangerous to sort of uh, divorce these ideas because I think the discussion of early childhood education, literacy, numeracy, and nutrition are critical youth discussions because that's where they, these, these children are going to, to uh, that's the trajectory that you're putting them on. And so partnerships with, with government and communities around these core issues, I think, are really, really important. There's a kind of approach, I think, that sort of says, on the one hand, we have to think about how uh, people like Kidane, what are the options that we can create for them? Well, firstly, human rights. This is a not, sort of non-negotiable, right, Philip? We, we, we think of somebody's right to not be tortured or persecuted to enjoy religious freedoms. These are really fundamental. And I, I, I just hope that, uh, that increasingly that our, our region and our leaders in the region understand the importance of that. I think they do. It's not always apparent. And of course, it's not always in practice. It's, it can be a bit different. 
but uh, giving people a chance to enjoy those freedoms is, is really, really key. Um, economic opportunity, livelihood, jobs, uh, development. Uh, you know, there are lots of programs that are trying to do this. There are amazing partners doing work that focuses on this. Um, you know, local partners, international partners. And I think that um, that can be done without ignoring the importance of doing a, a much the early work, uh, you know, uh, on, on uh, child education and, and nutrition, as I, as I mentioned before. So I, it's tough. On the one hand, it, some people might hear that and say, well, are you kind of just sacrificing or, you know, are the, what about the kids who are dropped out of high school and or secondary school and were unable to finish, you know, girls who are not able to complete school because the systems in place in education, in uh, educational systems do not account for you know, uh, menses and, and, and school dropout. These are all really, really important issues and they have to be, they have to be addressed. Uh, but you also have to acknowledge that you're going to keep addressing them in a symptomatic kind of way if you're not trying as much as possible to, to do these early. And I, I, the one thing I will say just to, to tie a knot on this is that anytime you have conflict, it all goes belly up, right? And so uh, this is the big lesson. I think, you know, I think Ethiopia is in the middle of it. Many countries have, but you can be on a trajectory where you are doing all these things. You're helping to address the needs of a, a, a youth bulge while having solid programs that address the, uh, you know, requirements for nutrition and, and education for children, the health of mothers, etc. And then you have a war and everything stops and you don't just go, you don't just stop. You go backwards. You go backwards many years right and now you are trying to dig yourself out of a hole and and this is why peace and i think you know stability above all else right so when we, earlier when we were talking about our government's authoritarian or are this is this government more central than others you know i i am probably in a minority and i but i'll put myself out there and say it's 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 probably worth acknowledging if they are but it's also important to acknowledge is that country safe is it peace? Is it at peace? Is it at peace with its neighbors? You know, is uh, our, the ability of people to maintain their property, to have peace in their home, to let their children go to school and return, are those things in, in, in place as well? In the absence of conflict, you can do many things. Where there's conflict and, and uh, instability, it's impossible to try and even tread water. I think. That's a th thank you, and it's a nice way also to bring back that the earlier topic from our conversation. So we, we have this little tradition uh, in the podcast to to wrap up with three quick closing questions. But before I do that, I, I wanted to to ask you if there's anything else you wanted to share. And I'm also conscious that I really don't know the development space well at all. Um, and so I was just wondering if there's anything unsaid there that uh, would, would be important to bring out and maybe also asking you to reflect on uh, where you are now and kind of what's burning inside you as you kind of look back on quite a number of years in your in your space um, and a situation in, in that region of Africa that that is that is still still challenging with with new challenges. We talked about the debt crisis. Um, so, so, but, but very much curious to put the spotlight as well on, on you and what's what, what's kind of burning inside you right now. Despite everything, I, I think I am still an optimist. I, I mean, I, I do this because I believe in the possibility of uh, global partnerships to uh, to impact uh, um, the well-being of of, our, of uh, people across the world, and I think that uh, 
there's a way to put uh, local development up front and connect it with uh, global best practices and lessons and resources, you know, um, that allow for a symbiotic relationship and not one that is, uh, you know, donor to beneficiary, as it were. Easier said than done. I mean, I think some of the areas, if I if I have to be a, a bit more reflective, I think some of the areas that remain a challenge are sort of the bilateral relationships between um, donor states and, and national governments. And so sometimes we end up doing work that skirts that because relationships may not always be ideal. Um, but, you know, for, for better or for worse, the public sector and, and the governments were in these countries set monetary fiscal policy. And, you know, to go back to this issue of the debt crisis, I increasingly think that that's, these are the bread and butter issues that affect all the people in the countries that we work in. So when we have massive currency devaluation and inflation at an order, which, you know, is not comparable to the inflation that I think you see in the West, uh, and we don't address that, we, we are so far removed from that, that's a challenge. It is a challenge to say, how do we continue to work in places where macro issues continue to impact the daily activity and well-being of the of the partners and, and the, the people that we are working with? Uh, and it's difficult to separate those. So this is an area where, you know, I, I think, and, and many others uh, in my organization and many other organizations, as well as the donors themselves, are trying to understand better how, how we deal with that. The other thing, of course, is and this is particularly the case in, in Kenya, is the impact of climate change on the region in every aspect, not just as a function of, you know, uh, food insecurity, but just, uh, you know, it, it's there are opportunities there for climate financing, for energy that I hope that uh, we can do more on that might allow this region and countries in, in Africa to, to leapfrog technology and to sort of catch up if the right resources and uh, commitment are, are in place. So there's there are a lot of opportunities. Difficult to see that happening without peace and and sort of economic integration. Yeah, and it's connected because a lot of that, like renewable energy and things like this, depend on affordable financing. So if if you have crazy absolutely rates, uh, and indebtedness, uh, it's very very difficult to channel uh, channel funding to uh, even things that have almost no risk, like like uh, solar panels. Yeah. So we have this little tradition at the end of the podcast to ask three quick questions. First one is anything that you've read recently that resonates or changed the way you see the world or just made an impression on you? Yes, I recently read, um, well, the most recent thing that I read that I think that I can comment on is uh, a book by Anne Lowry called Give the People Money, uh, which I think uh, was... It's a very interesting book that starts off uh, looking at um, basic minimum income in the U.S. and then sort of takes this narrative and, and looks at it from the development perspective and the experience of cash transfer programs. And of course, you know, as somebody who works in development, I think it's really important to be intellectually honest and honest otherwise about, you know, how much of what the resource that we are trying to provide for development programs actually gets to it. And so... It's a very compelling argument, I think, for, uh, you know, getting money directly into the hands of the people. Just as the title says, give the people money. You know, if you trust in markets and you trust in these things, there, you know, there might be a better way. So, but 
Yeah, it, it actually, actually, the the book that you mentioned resonates a lot because that that's that was actually the the thesis of my my GMAP uh, de degree w w was about direct payments oh. for for oil and gas in in fragile states and how people are much better able to make their own decisions on how to spend the money than if you put many layers of indirect. Oh yeah, wonderful. Interestingly enough, I did mine on debt crisis, and this was in 2019. And so, I mean, this, the signs were there, I think. And uh, That's an interesting topic. There's also a lot of myth, myths within our GMAT community about the responsibility of China behind that. Second quick question, uh, I'm very interested in, in people's uh, habits, rituals, or life hacks. So is, is there any, no matter how small, is, is there any um, such ritual or habit that you do that has improved your life? I'm a big music enthusiast and, and uh, I love listening to music and um, I have a Saturday ritual. So I have a number of uh, records. I, um, I listen to music on vinyl records and um, I don't often get, it's a, it's a very, um, it's not like plugging in your, you know, hitting play on your phone and listening to a song because you, it's a very tactile experience where you get the record, pull it out of the sleeve you know, dust it off, let it play. And so that's a bit of a ritual on Saturday mornings. I'll always listen to one or two albums and just sit down and do it. And I find it to be uh, one, I just, I love listening to music, but also it just gives me a chance to take time and do it, not just sort of let me play something in the background. So I kind of immerse myself in that. I, I would say that it helps me. I think sometimes when I'm playing something that my wife is and, and daughter are not particularly enthusiastic about, uh, I hear some silent grumbling, or I hear them <laughs> go out for a walk. But uh, and I, I tend to play. I tend to play it pretty loud. And and last one is: Is there a place that has special significance to you? Yes, I think uh, Nairobi generally. Well, uh, this is a very hard question to ask, Philip, because I feel like I, uh, as somebody who I'm going to take a the liberty of giving you. <laughs> too, because uh, as a person who has spent so many time in so many countries and calls a number of places home, I'll give myself the, the liberty of doing that. Um, the house I grew up in Nairobi, Kenya, in, in an area called Lavington, is, is especially uh, memorable for me. And I had a chance to visit yesterday with my, my father, who is now 90 years old, and my sister, who's visiting with her family. And they're just reminded about how much time I spent there and, and very emotional and uh, a place I'm very connected to. The city of Asmara, where I met my wife, the city stroke town of Asmara, which is a beautiful, unbelievable town. Um, you know, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, uh, wonderful walking areas and, and coffee shops and wonderful people is a place that I uh, pops up in my dreams probably three or four wow. times a wow. week. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so it's, just, yeah, so... So I would say those two. Great, great, thanks. Thanks so much, Morgus. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation. So really, really, uh, really grateful for that. Thank you, Philip. I've enjoyed it greatly as well. I appreciate your questions and, and you taking the time to do these podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways you can help. Please click the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also consider becoming a supporter by visiting at the coalface.buzzsprout.com. Thank you.